But resilience, uh, we feel, has not received nearly as much attention as mitigation, and it should. By resilience in this book, we're talking about the capacity of a community, a company, a country to reduce, uh, absorb, and adapt to the impacts of climate change. Welcome to Energy 360, the podcast from the CSIS Energy Security and Climate Change Program. I'm your host, Lisa Highland. In this episode, Sarah Ladislaw is joined by Alice Hill and Leo Martinez-Diaz to talk about climate resilience. Alice is a senior fellow for climate change policy at the Council for Foreign Relations, and Leo is global director for the Sustainable Finance Center at the World Resources Institute. Together, they are the authors of the recent book, Building a Resilient Tomorrow, How to Prepare for the Coming Climate Disruption. Sarah talks with Alice and Leo about how communities are building resilience, what solutions are being mobilized in the U.S. and across the globe, and what lessons we can learn from these. I'll turn it over to Sarah now. Thanks very much, Alice and Leo, for being here today. Thank you. So, Alice, you've been here before, once in your role uh, in the Obama administration, which I think we'll talk about in a little bit. But I wanted to talk to you today about a book that you've written called Building a Resilient Tomorrow. I thought maybe we just start off by, you know, asking you know, two small questions. One, what's resilience? Uh, and two, why are you two writing about it in particular? Leo? We want to talk about resilience um, because the focus of a lot of the climate change conversation right now has been on mitigation. That is to say, cutting greenhouse gas emissions. Uh, and that should be, that's appropriate. It is the, a very urgent challenge, and we only have a limited amount of time to make the uh, reductions that we need in order to hit certain temperature targets that are so important. But resilience, uh, we feel, has not received nearly as much attention as mitigation, and it should. By resilience in this book, we're talking about the capacity of a community, a company, a country uh, to reduce, uh, absorb, um, and and uh, adapt to the impacts of climate change. Uh, it is uh, crucial because uh, these impacts are already here. Uh, some of them are inevitable. They're already baked into the way in which uh, the planet is uh, responding to emissions already in the atmosphere. And as a result, we have to start thinking about how uh, to deal with some of those impacts. Increasingly, we're beginning to see that um, those impacts are uh, exacerbating things that already existed before. Uh, of course, we have had wildfires, we have had hurricanes uh, since time immemorial. But now we're beginning to uh, tease out uh, just how much has a particular event been exacerbated by uh, rising temperatures. Uh, and so it's no longer an issue of, well, climate change is theoretically uh, a problem. Now we can actually identify with some precision exactly how much worse things have become because of rising temperatures. So uh, our responsibility now is to think how to build resilience against these impacts. And Alice, you both have sort of a different background that you uh, both served in the Obama administration, but dealing with this issue from different perspectives, maybe you could talk a little bit about uh, about your perspective on this challenge, and then Leo, you can talk about yours a little bit. Sure. I came to climate change through a uh, unusual route, although I suppose most people uh, <laughs> in my age uh, came to climate change unusually because we weren't taught about it. Uh, most of us didn't have any education in it. I previously was in the law. I was a federal prosecutor and doing white-collar crime prosecution and then a judge on the Los Angeles Superior Court. I then was invited to join the Obama administration, and one of my first assignments was looking at what 
DHS, the Department of Homeland Security, this huge sprawling uh, agency, the third largest in the federal government, needed to worry about in 2009 with regard to climate change. We assembled a task force and asked ourselves, do we need to worry? We're an anti-terrorist organization. We have FEMA, the Coast Guard. We have TSA. What does climate change have to do with the missions that have been assigned to the department? We concluded that it had everything to do with those missions and that we needed to start planning how we were going to be able to operate and address uh, the threats posed by climate change. So that's how I got started. It was helpful to be able to use my legal background and then also the homeland security and national security knowledge that I learned while I was in the Obama administration. And Leo, you were also in the Obama administration, but over at Treasury, focusing more on sort of international finance issues. Can you talk a little bit about how you got involved in climate change? Sure. I mean, for me, um, I think the wake-up call was sitting in a room with uh, lots of finance ministers from the Caribbean and Central America uh, when I was, even before I joined government in, at Brookings in around 2006 or seven, And... Um, this was a time when, aside from talking about exchange rates and uh, macroeconomic variables and inflation and, and so on, uh, the theme of climate change really began uh, to sound very strongly among those conversations. Uh, and for these folks in particular, uh, they were looking at events that could uh, routinely wipe out 5, 10, 15 percent of GDP per year, right? And so it became very clear to me that uh, climate change wasn't just um, something that ought to stay in the province of environmental discussions or of energy discussions, but rather one that had to be part uh, of um, finance, uh, economic development discussions. Uh, then when I went to USAID, uh, I led the first effort uh, to develop a, an agency-wide strategy for climate change. And then in the second term of the administration, that's when the president really took on climate change as a legacy issue. And then we had... Uh, sort of the, the wind in our sails to really push uh, on these questions. There was, of course, a convening of a council on preparedness and resilience that brought together all kinds of different um, stakeholders. Uh, and then at that point, it really became clear that we had to uh, get very specific about what exactly uh, should resilience look like, where do we start, what kinds of agencies and institutions do we need to mobilize uh, to start preparing now. Well, one of the things that I like the most about this book is you do what you just said, which is you get very specific about the kinds of things that need to be done kind of from a practitioner's standpoint about building a more resilient future, which I think for a lot of people who've come to the issue of climate change, maybe from an energy perspective, isn't a, a full set of things in their mind, right? It's sort of hard to figure out how you get your arms around sending the right signals to doing the right things in terms of building the right infrastructure or understanding where liability risk uh, is uh, in terms of, you know, uh, who, who bears the damages of a changing environment. And then also, you know, when you think about uh, the investment framework going forward. So you guys sort of start off the book by looking at some of those issues. And I thought it was really interesting uh, some of the statistics about investment and in resilience, which I think we've seen in a number of different places, but that they actually the return on investment and in resilience is quite good, right? Every dollar spent on resilience yields a $6 savings, but we're really ill-equipped to actually reap those savings uh, through the way that we think about that risk, through the way we monetize that risk, and even the way that we regulate the built environment. Alice, I was 
you guys talk a lot about these these no more mo- moments, right? These places that have experienced, uh, you know, a, a, a terrible fire or a terrible flood, and they've made the kinds of changes to make themselves more resilient. But then there's all these other places that haven't, right? Or even for places that have, like California or Australia, that have tried to take some action to make themselves more resilient, they continually sort of run into difficulties. Why why is it so hard for people to figure out a way to sort of break the cycle of the kinds of impacts that they're continually seeing from some of these events? And and where did you find that there were success stories? And what would you to what would you attribute that success? The challenge with uh, climate change is that it's presenting a risk that humans have never really had to deal with. It's a risk that is unfolding now, but will worsen over time and cause irreversible consequences. But those consequences may not manifest or be shown for a few decades, many decades. And so as humans make decisions, we make decisions on a much shorter time frame. And that's why you'll see that communities don't want to make the investment either in the extra cost or the inconvenience of building towards events that they've never seen before and that they believe may never occur. Part of this is cognitive biases. It's just the way humans assess risk. We are optimists by nature, uh, and that's why we have many people getting married with a 50% divorce rate. They don't think it's (laughs) going to happen to them. And then we also have uh, an availability bias. If we haven't experienced it or someone we know hasn't experienced the tragedy, we tend to think that it won't happen to us. It's just not applicable. Even if it does occur to us uh, over time, we then believe it will not occur again. So all these biases get in our way of accurately assessing what's ahead with climate change. And then, of course, you have the issue of leadership uh, and whether leaders take advantage of that moment. And that's really what we've seen is when a no more moment, a terrible catastrophe hits. For example, in 2003, France had extraordinary heat. They had something like 15,000 excess deaths. That's more people died during that time than would have otherwise died. Mm -hmm. As a result of that, France said no more. And they are one of the most prepared countries for heat waves. And they have had subsequent heat waves. We also saw in the Netherlands in 1953 a terrible event, a flooding where uh, many thousands were killed in their sleep. And now, of course, the Dutch are known as some of the best water engineers. They plan for the one in 10,000-year flood. They also commemorate every year that terrible event in 1953, which serves to remind the Dutch that this is something that could happen again. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. You also have examples, though, of places you know, like uh, in Houston or in New York where even though they've had those moments, it's very hard to overcome some of the disincentives to building better, right? So you still have buildings being built in floodplains and places where it's almost a near certainty that they're going to get flooded again. Why does that happen? Well, over time, people do um, become less concerned about uh, these events. There is an added cost involved. So some uh, people will say, well, we can't afford to do that because we have an affordability housing crisis, for example. So we're not going to add the extra cost of elevating the home that's in a floodplain or tying down the roof, whatever it could be that would make the structure more resilient. 
So as a result, uh, you see that there can be uh, movement backwards. There's also a lot of money to be made for uh, both developing cheap housing as well as developing in areas that are attractive to buyers. And it turns out all of us want to live along the coast. We all want to live <laughs> along the water. So those properties remain uh, highly desirable, and therefore developers uh, want to develop on them. But then again, you'll see a new leader step in. Uh, the governor of New Jersey has announced that by 2022, all developers will have to account for climate risk in New Jersey. Mm. <laughs> so we'll see how that goes. Yeah. And one more question on this. I, I, we do have a lot of listeners who are involved in the energy sector. Clearly, there's you know expected impacts that will affect the energy sector, um, both in terms of infrastructure but also uh, uh, demand as well. Can you talk a little bit about what those are and what you covered in the book? Yes, one of the things that we do know is that energy, electricity, is critical to how we cope uh, in cities. And once the grid goes down, it pretty much pulls everything else down. They're just this cascading effects. So very important to have a resilient grid. During Sandy, we learned uh, the storm surge came in at 14 feet. Manhattan had basically planned for 12 feet. They had neglected to include the approximately foot of sea level rise that had occurred around Manhattan since 1900. Mm. So their planning just under-accounted for what could be uh, more water coming into Manhattan. It caused a substation to explode. Everything began to fail. The health system uh, the hospitals didn't have power, so they had to evacuate 6,500 patients. Wastewater treatment uh, plants failed. Millions of gallons of dirty water flooded into the waterways around Manhattan. Transportation failed. So we know that we need to have a resilient grid. Hmm. Interesting. Leo, everything that Alice has just talked about can also be seen through the lens of, of risk, right? Potential risk. And a lot of ways that we're hearing about that these days is risk to financial markets, risk to investments. And part of that is what you guys have identified in the book, which is the risks actually exist and we don't understand them as well as we should. But two, if financial markets uh, were able to sort of understand this risk better, we might be able to price them better and, and uh, in so doing be able to affect better decision making. You've dealt with this a lot. Why do you think it's such an important issue for thinking about resilience and where do you think it might go over the course of the next couple of years? Sure. I think... Um with resilience, we need system-wide solutions. Uh, we just don't have time to go project by project, bridge by bridge, uh, school by school creating resilience. We need uh, approaches that allow us to move um, whole sectors uh, quickly. And markets are a very powerful way to do it. They're not uh, the only way to do it, but they are one way to do it. Uh, and by markets, I mean really the prices of all kinds of assets, whether it's real estate or stocks and bonds, municipal uh, debt, uh, insurance, right? Prices signal to consumers, to investors, uh, to regulators that there is a risk here. Uh, and we see that uh, in many different types of uh, assets in, in the market, except with climate risk, we, yet, we don't yet see, in many cases, uh, a true signal that the climate risk is there. Uh, what we talk about in the book has more to do with the physical impacts of climate change. Do we see, for example, as Alice was saying, um, seaside property that is highly 
vulnerable to flooding uh, or uh, sea level rise? Do we see the value of those properties uh, trading at a discount, if you will, relative to properties that are comparable but in a resilient or more secure area? And I think uh, in the book we looked at four different markets uh, and try to uh, look at where the literature is at the moment, where the, the situation is. And broadly, we conclude that in the real estate market, we do see a signal. After Superstorm Sandy hit uh, New York, uh, the properties in the area uh, where the storm hit dropped in value between 6 and 16% uh, and stayed there at that discount, even uh, for the four years after that. And so some markets appear to be waking up. Other markets uh, are not nearly, it's not nearly as clear. Uh, with stocks, with bonds, even with insurance, uh, it's not yet clear that that risk is being captured. Partly it's because it's hard to do that, uh, to quantify the, the risk. Uh, sometimes also we're not dis disclosing that risk. Uh, the, the regulations are not yet uh, requiring that companies tell investors um, exactly uh, what kind of risks they believe they are incurring as a result of climate change. And do you think there's just going to be kind of an evolutionary change in that sort of understanding and disclosure pro process? Or do you see mandatory disclosure really shifting the way that we think about and appreciate this risk? Well, at the moment, the, um, we are in what's called a voluntary disclosure regime. Uh, ever since about 2015, uh, the overall paradigm has been uh, here's some private uh, sector-led uh, recommendations. Uh, here's uh, how you might think about uh, disclosures uh, of climate risk, and then companies, please go ahead and start doing it on your own without any regulatory requirements. Um, that has uh, led us some way forward, but there's still many, many companies that are not doing that. Only in the last check, only about 4% of over 1,000 companies surveyed uh, are actually uh, reporting against the full range of disclosures. Uh, and so we're not moving fast enough. Uh, the conversation in Europe right now is uh, increasingly towards a mandatory disclosure regime. Uh, in the United States, we're some ways away from that. Uh, but it's worth talking about the merits of such a thing. And if you were to go mandatory, how would you do it? It's not an easy undertaking. Technically, it's difficult. Um, and also, we need to make sure that we have enough room left to experiment because we are still uh, in early days. And very importantly, that investors know what to do with the information, because you can have all the information out there, but then investors need to understand uh, how to make it operational mm -hmm. in terms of their own um, behavior. Mm -hmm. I want to turn for a minute, because you deal with a number of like really interesting issues related to resilience in here. One, that because you're at CSIS, uh, that resonates uh, particularly strongly is the national security element, which I, you hear people talk a lot about in sort of vague terms, right? Climate change will lead to some sort of you know uh, national security concerns. I thought it was interesting in the book, you said about two-thirds of the countries in the world have recognized climate change as a national security issue. There's a really great uh, sort of anecdote at the beginning of, uh, of the chapter on this talking about a, a war game scenario, for lack of a better word, where you take a group of people and they play the role of different sort of leaders of different countries uh, and out through the end of the century, you know, doing 10-year increments, have to sort of cope with uh, the climate impacts that you saw. I just want to read a little passage from that Players started the game looking for cooperative solutions, but later grew selfish, more insular, and more willing to preserve their status quo. By the time they got around to the sixth round, players began to exhibit a global fatigue with failed states and migrants. 
the effects of large-scale migration influenced countries' foreign policies and shaped how they viewed their national culture. No one who started the game expected to see a near-total breakdown in cooperation as temperature rose. At least, that was certainly not where the players had intended to end up. And yet, as conditions grew worse, the players resorted to increasingly desperate and unilateral measures just at a time when cooperation was needed most. I remember about a decade ago when I first encountered climate change and national security conversations, descriptions like that seemed a little hyperbolic. They seemed a little dystopian. But I actually don't think that that's terribly far away from what we see governments doing today in the face of things that we recognize as being climate impacts, migration certainly being you know, top of the list. I'm just struck by as we're seeing more of these types of impacts, and in fact, maybe seeing that cooperation becomes harder the more of these things that you do, that it's certainly not causing all governments around the world to recognize that there is that worry about fatigue, the worry about, you know, climate impacts being able to overwhelm governance capacity. You tried to deal with this directly in the Obama administration. I think last time you were here, Alice, you were talking about the presidential memorandum on climate change and national security, which the Trump administration has since withdrawn. What should the U.S. government be doing at this particular point in time to prepare better for that scenario? And is the international community doing this without us if we're not engaged in those conversations? Or are we? We just don't call it climate change. What's the status of that activity? The status is that uh, publicly, at least, the administration is not engaged on planning for national security risks posed by climate change. The president's national security strategy does not mention climate change, nor does uh, the primary documents issued by the Defense Department uh, regarding uh, their strategies. The Director of Intelligence for the United States does talk about climate change, but as far as I can tell, there is no active uh, interagency planning on this issue, and that's what we need. We need for the government to look at the national security risks from the point of uh, its own defense. So that's the Department of Defense. Department of Defense has been called upon by the Congress to do a better job in planning for its own, the effects on its own installations, its facilities from climate change. We also need for uh, our diplomats to be thinking about how do we help other countries, particularly uh, keep their uh, citizens at home, thrive at home, so they're not creating uh, great migration pressures. Uh, development world has done a better job of integrating resilience into their work, but we still need to go beyond just considering whether a project is resilient to thinking deeply about how do we build resilience uh, among our allies and others whom we want to have strong economies in the face of worsening conditions. And part of that requires leadership to say this is a challenge for us and we need to get ready. Leo, there's also a chapter in the book dealing expressly with inequality. Um, the thing that links these two ideas together for me is on the national security side, we don't tend to think about the interdependence of our own health and well-being with that of our allies and countries around the world. We also don't think about how communities where you know folks who are lower on the socioeconomic spectrum who cannot be able to or who have a harder time adjusting to the impacts of climate change 
are really part and parcel of the fabric of our economy and our society. And so thinking about how they respond to climate change is also very important. You guys talked about in some detail what are the particular challenges related to inequality in society and dealing with climate change and thinking about how to do that better. Could you share a little bit of that with us? Sure. Uh, we're living with some of the highest levels of inequality, economic inequality, since the 1920s. Uh, and uh, I think it's well documented now that um, this type of inequality is generating a lot of political and social polarization, which is permeating our political campaigns, our, our social uh, conversation. Uh, our concern is that climate change is going to make some of that worse. And the reason is because some of the impacts that climate change uh, brings about and exacerbates often tend to hit uh, the poor and vulnerable first and hardest. Uh, and so in the book, we go into some detail uh, with some examples of how that uh, has actually panned out. Consider, for example, that in, in New Orleans, right after Katrina, 70% uh, of those who perished uh, in the hurricane were aged uh, 65 and over, even though they were only 15% of the overall population uh, of, the, of the city and the surrounding area. Uh, and so... Uh, in these kinds of uh, natural disasters, it's often the elderly and those who are unable to move uh, that uh, perish first. We looked at uh, heat waves, as uh, Alice mentioned earlier, um, including the one in Europe in 2003 that, that was uh, a killer, primarily of folks who were isolated, people who were living by themselves, who did not have somebody to check up on them, uh, who were unable to get themselves to safety uh, in time. And the same types of findings have been corroborated by work in, in the Chicago heat wave of 1995, uh, heat waves in Canada, and so on. So we know that isolation kills. Uh, we know that uh, poverty kills. And so the question for us in, in this chapter is, how do we put in place uh, certain systems, certain practices that help us look after the poor and vulnerable first? Uh, and those include sort of high-tech solutions, including the application of AI, for example, to cross-check multiple databases and try to alert first responders as to where the uh, most vulnerable populations might live so they can check up on them first, uh, to decidedly low-tech solutions, uh, but very effective ones, such as building communities that are far more uh, connected. So these are the kinds of fairly specific things that are required, uh, but we also need to think not just about the U.S., but also about other countries, right? Because ultimately, those migratory flows that are going to be unchained uh, are the ones that led uh, in the simulation you just talked about earlier uh, to those kinds of social pressures and, and political uh, instability as these places become more and more affected by climate change. There's a lot of uh, sort of similarities in some of those themes with another chapter or sector that you deal with, which is healthcare, which has been in the news for different reasons recently with the coronavirus and, you know, pandemics obviously being another thing we expect to see more of in a changing climate. Alice, can you talk a little bit about what you meant by sort of, you know, hardening the healthcare system and, and making it more able to respond to climate impacts? I, I will note uh, our global health team here just came out with a commission called uh, Moving Beyond Crisis and Complacency, which I thought is a great, you know, sort of analogy for how we tend to respond to these things, which is a completely uh, unacceptable response if you think about the types of impacts we expect to see going forward. So I just thought you could share some of the observations you all had on that as well. We do see that uh, with extreme events, it puts great stress on the ability of communities to continue to deliver health care. 
And if we are unable to deliver health care, that's one of just the fundamental rights concerns. Babies are going to have to be born. There's a surgery that may need to be taken care of. There's immediate health uh, issues that will arise because of the emergency, but also are just chronic to the population. There has been little planning to date to really make those systems resilient. For example, in California to areas that are prone to wildfire, you need to think about your ventilation system so that you can continue to operate, even if you're fire safe, but you're going to have smoke entering the building. We saw in Texas, uh, after Hurricane Allison, the Texas Medical Center, which is a huge complex in Houston, about two square miles, 52 different uh, hospitals and other treatment centers. It was heavily damaged during Hurricane Allison, and that center had its no more moment, decided we have to be able to operate during these extremes, invested money in floodproofing its uh, basements in making sure that its doorways were floodproofing, raising uh, different berms around the property so that when Hurricane Harvey dumped four feet of rain on Houston, pancake flat Houston, just fl- flooding everywhere, this facility remained open. They only had to close one center. And as we think about the changes that will be brought by climate change, the change in disease vectors, see more tick-borne diseases, more mosquito-borne diseases, Zika. We also see, and I don't know if this probably isn't the case with coronavirus, but certainly with other diseases, as humans move into areas where wildlife is, uh, both because of population growth and because of climate change as they search uh, for more uh, agricultural lands, for example, there will be disease uh, that enters the human population that we need to plan for. We need the facilities to treat people and to make sure that treatment continues. During Sandy, we learned not only that we'd put our generators in hospitals in the basement, so they flooded out, there was no power. We also learned that a lot of our care is decentralized. So dialysis treatments occurs in shopping centers around the nation. Well, if those shopping centers lose power because of a big storm or preemptively because of a wildfire, people go without treatment. We need that kind of effort of insisting on the proper backup and accommodation for extremes across all healthcare in the United States as well as in other locations across the globe. One of the great things about this book is in every chapter you have very practical recommendations about things to do so people can check it out for each of these areas that we've talked about and see some of what those are. I do like, though, at the end of the book, Leo, you start talking about the very important role of three different types of people, silo breakers, translators, and communicators. Who are those people and why are they so important to the kind of systemic change that that you two are talking about in Mm -hmm. this book? We found that with climate change, what often happens is that conversations are going on, but they're going on inside uh, isolated islands. Uh, Generally, they could be government departments uh, where the conversation is happening inside, or used to be happening at least. Uh, In other places, it's inside academic disciplines. So you see the the lawyers, the engineers, the architects, uh, the scientists having their own conversations inside uh, their own uh, communities with their own technical language, in their own publications, in their own conferences. Mm -hmm. And uh, what's clear to us, uh, especially after writing the book, is that the only way we are going to have real lasting solutions is to get folks to work um, across those barriers. 
uh, and with each other because climate resilience will require multiple skill sets applied in concert to um, safeguard uh, specific assets and specific communities in different ways. We're going to have to learn to work together. Uh, and the silo breakers are the ones who can do that. These are folks, and we portray a couple of them in, in the introduction, who uh, in the city of Norfolk, for example, have been able to uh, pull together alliances and coalitions uh, of people who speak different technical languages and are able to bring uh, the engineers and the data scientists and the health professionals uh, in the same room and then to chart out a path towards resilience. Uh, and that's the type of uh, person we're going to need. These aren't um, necessarily specialists in one area, but are folks who are open-minded enough and able to talk to a, a broad number of, of uh, groups. The translators are just as important, uh, even though they may have very different skill sets. These are the folks who are technically very gifted, uh, but are able to take uh, a lot of the very complicated data uh, and information that is coming about climate change and its impacts and translating it into a language that business people and local mayors and uh, even you know uh, us citizens can understand without needing a PhD, right? <laughs> uh, and to do that, you need folks who, who really understand what the data is saying uh, and are able to put it in, in much more simple terms uh, and in ways that are decision ready. And that's something that we keep underlining. All this information is, uh, of course, interesting, but it's not going to be useful unless you can apply it to your day-to-day -day decisions as a business person or as a healthcare professional uh, or as a local leader. Uh, and it's these translators that are uh, so important. So we talk, for example, about um, folks working in, in Colombia in agriculture and how they are trying to do that uh, to bring you know, sophisticated climate modeling and its results uh, and communicate those to farmers who are often way off the grid uh, and need to understand how to plant, where to plant, uh, and when to plant it. Uh, and finally, the communicators are really important. These are folks who are able to talk to a community and persuade it that even without a no more moment, it's worth investing in resilience. And to do that, you have to persuade, you have to uh, nudge, you have to uh, coax people <laughs> into looking at the costs uh, today, but also at the benefits tomorrow. Uh, and even some of the benefits today, because uh, that also uh, is very important. And to ultimately uh, persuade a community to go along as a group, not just as individuals, but as a group. So we talk, for example, about Mayor Don Zimmer in uh, Hoboken, New Jersey, who really persuaded her community to accept money from the federal government uh, to build a lot of infrastructure to protect that town from impacts like uh, Superstorm Sandy. Uh, we need more of those folks, uh, and uh, they are not just necessarily politicians. Uh, they can be really from any walk of life, uh, but they have to be able to, um, to empathize and then to, uh, to communicate uh, in a way that's persuasive. And that last role, communicators, is really important in a part of the book that I found really you know, fascinating, which is, uh, for lack of a better word, the concept of managed retreat or needing to move people from places where they're going to be habitually sort of impacted by climate change and have to convince them that that's in their interest to do, which is just seems like a virtually impossible thing to do, but has been done in certain places. I think you guys point out Ellicott, Maryland, as an example in the book. Really, really hard stuff, hard conversations to have with communities that are, you know, probably in a terrible environment for uh, for being able to withstand some of those impacts. Last question. You guys have been out talking about this book. 
What have been some of the more interesting or surprising responses you've heard or things that people are really sort of gravitate to as they're grappling with these issues? For me, uh, one of the exciting things is the growing interest. Mm. Uh, people at first, when I began my journey with climate change, seemed a little more skeptical, a little more reluctant to engage in any discussion. So now you see that the audience is larger, people are better informed, uh, and they are quite concerned about what they can do. A second thing I've noticed is anger. I never had experienced anger from young people before, but I now experience occasionally um, a sense that baby boomer generation is handling a handing a terrible mess, uh, and we're not really engaged on fixing it uh, as a generation. So uh, the young people can feel a little um, mad about that and express that uh, in their questions. Uh, and the last thing is that pockets of pure denialism still exist, even among very highly educated audiences. Uh, the science is very clear, and that's I speak as a former judge who considered scientific evidence all the time in the courtroom. There is no question, this is beyond a reasonable doubt, that uh, we are warming. That's documented in recordings uh, across the globe since the 1880s. Uh, and there's also a little question about what's causing that, which is greenhouse gas emissions. But I still get questions where the person asking does not consider climate change to be occurring or certainly not occurring at the pace and with the ferocity that we are seeing. I think two things. Uh, the first is what we haven't heard. The dog didn't bark, if you will. We were kind of expecting that folks would say, you know, you are taking attention away from mitigation. Yeah, yeah. That this is a time when we, we ought to be 100% devoted to cutting emissions. Uh, and this talk of resilience is um, at best uh, a distraction or at worst, at worst um, a uh, message that we can live with climate change. Uh, and we haven't heard that, luckily. And the reality is that we're very clear that we're not saying that we can live with climate change. It's possible that there is no resilience or adapting to a five-degree world, or even less, perhaps. Uh, so we're very clear from the beginning that emissions cutting is absolutely crucial. But we no longer have the luxury of just focusing on mitigation. We have to do both. Uh, and that message, I think, comes across. We certainly try to, to make, uh, make sure it comes across strongly. Uh, but luckily, we have found that folks have apparently internalized that message now. Uh, and that's, uh, I think, uh, an improvement from even a decade ago. The second piece of this um, is that people are asking us about the role of government. Because if you look at the recommendations and, and so on here, it's very clear that government, uh, and by that I mean not just federal, but also state, local, uh, is going to have to play a much more active role. Uh, we're going to have to think of government as a source of solutions again. And the current uh, political moment does not call for that. In fact, quite the opposite. Um, and so if we're going to do what we are proposing here, we're going to have not just to believe in government again, we're going to have to devote ourselves to giving government uh, the capabilities uh, required to help us deal with this problem in partnership with the private sector and civil society. Uh, but that is going to require a considerable change in, 
in how we think uh, of the public sector. Uh, and um, without that, it's not, it's not going to work. We're going to need um, to make that change. Well, Alice Leo, it's an excellent book. Uh, I recommend it to anybody who wants to know more about what they think good systemic policy looks like in this space, what the role of government is, uh, what are some of the resilience challenges that we'll face. It's really, uh, it's really an excellent, uh, an excellent guide to all those things. We've talked a lot about it today, but there's a lot more in the book, so I encourage people to to check it out. But thank you both for spending some time to talk with us about it. Thank, thank you. you. Thanks for listening to Energy 360. Follow us on Twitter at CSIS Energy and find more episodes of Energy 360 at CSIS.org or wherever you listen to podcasts.